1: And welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate podcast. I'm your co host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. On the show with us today, Michael Zuber. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you?
2: I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for the invitation.
1: Thanks for being here. Before we get into it, here's a little bit about Michael. Michael had worked in the Silicon Valley since graduating from Santa Clara University over 20 years ago. After what he calls wasting his time and money in his 20s, he found real estate investing and more specifically buy and hold rental properties and never looked back. Michael focused on real estate and grew his rental property portfolio from a single rental house to financial freedom in just 15 years. Now that he no longer has a day job, he shares his story via his self-published book called One Rental at a Time and his YouTube channel also called uh, One Rental at a Time, so I'm extremely excited to hear about your journey to financial freedom, as I'm sure our listeners are. So, with that being said, Michael, could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do?
2: Sure, absolutely. Uh, Typically, you know, people are most interested to hear about where I, you know, where I started. Uh, Again, I was a full-time employee. I worked in the tech sector. Uh, I traveled over 100,000 miles a year on airplanes. Worked 80-hour weeks. Had a growing family responsibility. So, you know, I had a, a demanding full-time job or w2 job and uh, you know when I was 30 I you know I, I had to, I had to do something different because I knew I couldn't keep that pace up forever uh, I had seen people decades older than me in very poor health and still stressed out and in you know making a good income but not having a very good quality of life and when when you know that situation hits you kind of wake up and and you know you have to do something different. So, uh, I started with rentals. I bought that one house. Uh, you know that means I started in two thousand and three. I rode the wave uh, up. Uh, something we've we've seen different. I think Kyle has a copy of the book. Is in two thousand and eight we couldn't buy any more houses. So we did what was called a ten thirty one exchange and moved into you know larger multifamilies, uh, which exploded uh, our cash flow uh, and, and really set us up for long term success. That that you know, moving from very overpriced single family homes into multifamilies, then through the crash, right? Everybody sort of knows the crash as, you know, single family homes. But what most people don't realize is after the homes went down, you know, poorly run multifamilies went down and, you know, we continue to buy the multifamilies. We picked up several 10 units and 18 units and, and the like. So multifamily is a, a large portion of our portfolio. And, you know, my wife retired five years ago and, and, you know, I've been retired over a year now because of uh, largely because of multifamily and the passive income that those, those spit off. So uh, it's been a fun journey. It's, it's not easy, right? You know, when you work 80 hours a week, you're on an airplane on different parts of the world, you have to do it. There's, there's lots of moving pieces. You have to rely on a team. Uh, You have to have support of your significant, significant other without question. Uh, If you're both not on the same page, you're not going anywhere. Uh, So, so, you know, lots of things went right. You know, some of them we did on purpose, some, some we got lucky, but you know, passive income for multifamilies is a, is a huge part of our portfolio.
1: Awesome. Perfect intro.
3: Thanks for that. And so you said you rode the wave up in 2003, but when it hit 2008, did it continue to go up for you or was there kind of a dip there where you kind of had to learn and and do something a little different?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I, I, you know, when you read about it in the book, I look like a genius. Trust me, I am not. (laughs) Uh, So we were buying single family homes. We did buy one duplex. I, you know, it's all residential, right. Residential lending from 2003 to 2007, we had seven properties, eight doors, right? So it's six houses and a duplex. Then we were going for the next property. And um, you know, because I have that finance degree or economics degree and an MBA from Santa Clara um, I just couldn't buy the next property because they were so overpriced. For example, that first property we bought on Norris Drive, we bought for 107, right? In 2003, we ended up selling it at, in 2008 for 263, but the rent was the same, right? The rent was 1100 when I bought it for 107 and the rent was 1100 when I sold it for 263. And my, my brain could not wrap my head around buying another house like that because it just didn't cash flow. It was crazy. So what we did is we sold all those houses in that duplex. And technically, it's not sold, right? We actually exchanged via 1031, tax loophole, take all the equity, move it into another building, get a commercial loan, You know, get real financing 35%, 40% down because we're moving all of this equity. And you know, for example, uh, that Norris Drive house that we sold for 263 that rented for uh, 1100, we bought a five-unit building for 223 that rented for three grand. Right, so wrap your head around that, wow. and um, you know that was a huge. You know, I did that once, and I'm like, ooh, that's good. Let's do that some more. So we went from <laughs> eight to eighty units in about a year. So as the single family ho- housing market can you, continued to rise, we were we were selling. I swear, I sold something like the last week of the, of the rise, and we were we were sitting pretty in multifamilies, great income because of cash flow. Uh, and then when the single family market took a you know turned over. My, my rentals maybe were worth less, my apartments were worth less, but cash flow was better because occupancy okay. went up, rents went up. Um, and I don't know about you, but you know, I spend my income, I don't spend my net worth. So yeah, my net worth or balance sheet looked worse, but um, you know, because of multifamily passive income, I was, um, I was living pretty large. So it was, it was fun.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's a great thing, right? As long as you're cash flowing, it doesn't matter really where the value is of your property, unless you need to sell it that day, unless your balance is due that day. And so if you don't need to sell it, then that's really not a worry as long as it's cash flowing. So you touched on 1031 exchanges and really the power uh, that it has and really propelled you to the next level. Can you talk a little bit more about the detail of what a 1031 exchange is and and how you use it?
2: Yeah, certainly. I'll, I'll give you my you know, my, I'm not an accountant, not a lawyer, not an exchanger, you know, a, one guy's experience who's done, I don't know, half a dozen of them. So basically where the 1031 exchange come from, it's an IRS code uh, that allows you to sell an asset and exchange it quote unquote like kind. So you can sell a rental for a rental, right? You could not, for example, sell your primary residence and take the equity and put it in a rental. That's not like kind. Um, so in other words, I would sell a rental house and I would take that equity and move it into a five, a 10 and 18 unit apartment building, uh, like kind. Now there's rules as there's always rules with the IRS. Um, there's a couple of dates. I believe the first one is 45 days. You have to identify within 45 days, a list of properties that you would like to potentially close on. Right. You can, I think it's upwards of three, uh, that they recommend. And it may, it may be more, but that's what I remember is three. And then after you identify, you have upwards of 180 days to close on one of those identified properties. And if you do that and the money's held in escrow by an intermediary, it's all good. No tax impact. You take all the basis to the new entity, equity comes over, you get a new commercial loan, and and life is, is, uh, is golden, as they would say.
3: Awesome. And you just keep doing that and doing it and you defer to the taxes. That's amazing. Yes, sir. All right. So, what are what were some of the biggest challenges you faced when you were building your portfolio to the level it is today? Because right now, like you said, it kind of seems like it kept going up. But what were some of the bigger challenges?
2: Uh, Well, first, I chose to um, invest in a market that was two and a half hours away from my house. Right. So, I live in the Silicon Valley. Uh, I made the mistake of spending a year trying to find that magical street that would cash flow. Never did, um, because they don't. Right. The the Silicon Valley is ridiculously priced, and that was two thousand and three. Let alone now. So I I picked a market two and a half hours away and I had no contacts, no relationships. Uh, I knew no one. I'd frankly never been there. Right. When I chose Fresno, it was on a map. And it was because I found something on realtor.com or like website that said, oh, this this may be the one percent rule. So for me, the hardest part of this was finding and building a team. Uh, and, and the first thing you find is a long distance landlord, and I consider two and a half hours to be long distance because um, you know, I had a property manager since day one, was I um, you know, I had to hire somebody, right. I had to pay them, you know, at the time I think it was 10% of, of the rent. And the hardest part was I ended up firing the first five and that's hard to do, right. Because you got to go there, establish, you get, you know, leases transferred and, you know, people don't like being fired and just think that they are collecting rents for you and they're working with section eight for you. And, you know, um, that was the hardest part was finding a team. Uh, and then obviously, if you remember 2003 through 2008, finding a deal was ridiculously hard because it was a it was a huge sellers market right we're exiting a sellers market now but i promise you the sellers market from 03 to 08 was worse because of all the silly financing going on right countrywide IndyMac, all these people were doing 2 and 28s and these these liar loans and all the stuff that blew up the system but that stuff was all active when i was you know building this portfolio so prices were going nuts so you know do you know being a numbers oriented person and sort of locking into something was was hard, right? You kept getting outbid, uh, but you just, you know, just kept doing it and stayed true to yourself. And, you know, it all worked out.
3: Okay. Going back to your property management companies, you said you hired five. What would you do differently knowing what you know now when you're hiring those managers?
2: Oh, that's, there's a golden question right there. So the number one thing that I have found is you have to investigate the principle of the organization or the principle of the property manager. So what I, what do I mean by that? Um, What I have, found right this is one guy's opinion i have found that if the principal of the property management firm is a real estate broker and their main source of income is selling real estate they are not in my opinion the ideal property manager right they have a divided focus and in a crazy market good or a crazy market bad their focus can get diluted pretty quickly because 10% of a thousand dollars is a hundred bucks where you can get three or six percent of commission guess where their focus will be. So that, that was one experience I had that was, wasn't very good. The other one that's a big one is I want to know that the principal of the firm owns rental properties. I do not want to hear that the principal of the firm owns triple net, right? Office buildings, not interested. Uh, I do not want to hear they own only 150 unit apartment buildings when I'm buying houses or duplexes. So I want to know that the principal of the organization invests in the stuff that implement Processes, procedures that are right for someone buying when I'm buying, and I didn't understand that for the first four or five. But once I found it, I'm like, oh my god, he speaks my language. Oh, he thinks like an investor. And you know, the the firm that I happen to choose, the, the the principal's got you know has more units than I have, so uh, I have great confidence. And they build the team, and you know, all of those things. So um, those are some things I look for now that I wish I would have done in the beginning because I would have saved myself some money and, and a lot of stress that I just didn't need.
3: Yeah, fantastic. I'm going through that right now with some of my single family homes where the property management company owner is a broker. And obviously with the seller's market, he's more focused on that than he is growing his uh, management company. So uh, I can relate definitely to that. <laughs> hmm. Okay, so uh, switching gears to retiring off of your rental portfolio, what was it like for you You know, the days and the weeks after? Uh, you finally retired your job and you had nothing to do.
2: Um, so let me, so, so let me answer this question this way. So um, I had always envisioned retiring at 50 uh, and I retired at 45 to sort of put context. It came suddenly. Uh, I loved my job. I loved everything I did. I love my team. I would have frankly done it for free. Then as things happen, you know, situations occur. And then, you know, when you don't own the job and they own it, you, they, they, Um, they could put things in front of you and it just make it uncomfortable. So uh, they chose to do that as the fiscal year turned over because I was in sales and every year the the deck chairs change. And I'm like, you know what? Not good for you. Not good for me. I'm out. Um, So that was the decision point, right? Came really, really sudden. I mean, literally I texted my wife, Olivia. I said, honey, I think I'm going to quit. And, um, you know, it it went that direction that day. So to answer your question, the first two days were glorious. (laughs) I now refer to it as a sugar high. I, if you ever saw the movie Batman, where there was a Joker and he had a painted on smile, that's what I felt like, right? My face physically hurt from smiling so much and telling the story and getting high fives, you know, virtual high fives from all my friends. Then what I did not expect because I didn't have a backup plan. I didn't have something to keep me busy. I went into a pretty dark headspace for about six weeks. It, it got so bad in my negative self-talk because I'm type A and I like to be moving and grooving and talking to people. Um, you know, I went, I went through a depression and, uh, it wasn't until I found something else to do that pulled me out because it almost went to the point where like, I'm just going to just go and get a job because, you know, I'm 45, I've, you know, I'm waking up at 6am already and you know, you could only go to the gym for 90 minutes a day and what else am I going to do for 12 hours? So, uh, it almost got there. Uh, but thankfully, you know, Olivia pulled me back and, you know, she pushed me to find something and, uh, you know, we found something else to do. So, um, but it was it was very unexpected. I I look back on that because I've never been that type to get depressed or anything. The glass is always half full for me. But that six week period was funky.
3: Wow, interesting. Okay. So when you left your job at, at 45, were you still planning? You said your goal was always to lead by 50. Was your goal always to lead by 50 through your rental income? Or, you know, since it happened so suddenly, um, you know, my thought process was that you left based on your your portfolio at the time.
2: No, I could have left in my portfolio when I was 41 or 42. Um, it would just have been a question of what kind of quality of life you had. Um, we, we, were, we were living off um, our rental income since I was, let's call it 42. All my wage income just went in the bank, or maybe we bought some more assets with it or something, but it wasn't required for several years. I did it simply because I loved it. And um, you know things changed, and they didn't like me, and I didn't like them, and it was you know time to move on. So, um, yeah, I think I answered your question. Did I miss yep. it?
3: Yep. No, that's perfect. Thank you. So what are the biggest myths out there about achieving financial freedom to you?
2: Oh, there's so many. Um, So first off, there's obviously the emotional side. Getting to the finish line um, can be a letdown. You know, Anytime you really have a substantial goal and you kind of get there and you're like, you, you celebrate for a little while, that celebration wears off. And then you're like, you look around and you go like, what's next? But frankly, if you if financial freedom has been your goal and you've been myopically focused on that for 15 years and ultimately you get there what is going to be the next goal you can't retire twice right i mean what's the next thing so that shocked me um that was that was weird the other thing is it's most people think um you know being financially free ha- means having an impressive income Well, my income is fine for most people, right? I happen to live in the Silicon Valley, which is ridiculously expensive. So when you look at my tax returns, like, oh, that's a decent number. But you know, there's people in Tennessee or Kansas City or other states where you mean you know, I could have been done when I was 37, um, just because you would need less. It's really more about how much you spend, not how much you make. That's the that's a huge myth. People think it's a people think it's income or offense and it's all about defense. Financial freedom is one hundred percent about defense. If you can live off half your income, or 40% of your income, you're going to be done a lot sooner. And most people don't get that. They just keep buying those stupid toys. That's why I call my 20s a waste, right? I, you know, I made a, you know, what most people would call a great income over that decade. I spent it all, pissed it all away. And um, just silly. So it, it is definitely about playing good defense. A lot of people could be financially free if they just stopped spending so much, sacrificed um, you know, got on the same page with their partner. That's why I love that you two do this together because the number one thing I say before anybody does any kind of investments is go sit down, look your partner in the eye and go, are we in this together? Um, because if you read my book, I have a horrible story with that first investment we bought that would have washed 99% of the people out of the market. But because Olivia and I are on the same page, you know, we, we swallowed hard and and, and we kept going. So, um, you know, there's, there's lots of, lots of myths out there that, um, you know, that, that people don't quite see I think
3: yeah and I love the fact that you call it defense and I would encourage everyone out there to take you know an hour or two aside and sit down and talk about how you're going to strategize that defense and and lay it out and you know yeah when you sit down and see how much you spend you you realize that there's a lot that you can save on just by thinking about how you spend it maybe you don't even have to um you know Cut back what you buy. It's where you buy it, how you buy it. You know, so there's a lot of detail into that. But I I love the fact that you say play defense there. It's it's perfect. So you mentioned in 2003 to 2008, it was actually more difficult than it is today to find good deals. So this is kind of a perfect question for you. I'm asking, how do you go out and find those deals in today's market? But maybe even back in 03 to 08, what were some of the creative ways that you went about finding deals in a market that is? more geared for sellers. So,
2: uh, well, let's talk about 03 for 08. Cause that's a much shorter list. Um, the, the only thing I ever had available to me from 03 to 08 was, was the MLS multiple listing service. And to be clear, it wasn't the actual MLS. It was what the MLS allowed other applications to see. So think realtor.com redfin, you know, maybe Zillow, uh, is getting there. So all, that's all I had. I had no special access. I knew no one, I had no one's password. I just had the sheer desire to work, wake up one hour earlier every day for 10 years and look at all the listings. And I would make and make lots of phone calls. I was in sales, so I'm comfortable on the phone. Uh, I literally looked at the MLS multiple times a day for 10 years. So it wasn't about a tool. It was about repetition, consistency, and not being afraid to make 100 calls to get one maybe. Frankly, I wasn't even looking for yeses. The, the market was so nuts. But basically what you started looking for is you look, try to look for holes in the market from 03 for 08. So I got really good at buying 1250 square foot, two bedroom, one bath because what you can do with most of those is you can create three bedroom, one baths And as a landlord, a three bedroom rents for, you know, at the time, 200 bucks more than a two. So if you can buy it as a two, spend an extra 2,500 bucks, make it a three life's good. Right. Um, then there's the ones that are the classic, you know, bad pictures, bad descriptions, you know, just agents being lazy, which happens in a seller's market. So I would look at everything 90 days and above. And, you know, I would make lots of calls there. So it was just about consistency then. Fast forward to today, lots of different ways, right? Access to information today is light years ahead of where it was from 03 to 08. I mean, vastly different, right? You can get updates on your phone and add, and you get have stuff pushed to you and you don't have to search like I was, right? I was, that's like archaic. I was like using papyrus paper or something. It was so long ago. Um, but now also you have all these wholesalers and you have networking groups and all these other people. If you just get clear on what you're looking for, people will bring you stuff. What you don't say, you don't walk in a room and say, hey, bring me a deal. No, you go in and say, hey, I look for three bedroom, two baths, one story homes, somewhere between a 1,000 and 1250 square feet, uh, preferably less than 50 years old with a peak roof. That's what you say. And then if you want to throw in less than 150 grand and maybe the zip code, sure. But that's what you need to do. People need to get clear on what they're looking for. I can't tell you when I ask people a question somewhat like this is, I just want a deal. They're like salivating for a deal, like Pavlov's dog. Well, who's to say what I think a deal is, is a deal for you. Mm -hmm. So that's what a lot of new investors got to get right, is they got to sit back and go, what am I looking for? Because what I think is a deal may not be what you're looking for. And You know, what I think, you know, a return is may not be what you think a return is. So, um, you know, the the ability to network, that's the big thing I missed in the beginning is this is such a people business. Um, The more people you talk to and the more people that know you, uh, the more deals you'd be attracted to, right? I woke up at four o'clock this morning to go to Fresno to meet with four people I've never met before. And I'll likely get a deal out of that uh, call. And then, of course, I had to get back here in time so I can do this podcast. But again I was willing to do that because you just the relationships even after 15 years are vital right I met a wholesaler uh, and two real estate agents and then a commercial broker today all because you know I want to get known by more and more people and I was very clear on what I'm looking for commercial broker I'm looking for owner finance departments five units to 20 units wholesalers I want three bedrooms and above in these two zip codes with thirty to 40 K in repairs right agents and you know I'm looking in these two areas for you know four bedroom two bath houses right so I'm very clear on what I'm looking for, and I give people direction, and um, you know, uh, good things happen.
3: Yep, aim small, miss small is what I say. So perfect. So, if there was one piece of advice that you'd give to the listeners, other than just get started, what would it be? Um,
2: I would. I challenge most of my friends because I get lots of people saying, "Hey, how'd you do it?" Especially now that I'm retired, right? They're like, you know, hey, you know, tell me, tell me how you did. I'm like, well, I've been telling you for 15 years. But I would take a challenge uh, to pick a number. Of new people to meet in your market. Uh, I would accept anything above five, right? If you're going to tell me one new person a week, you're not serious. It's not hard to meet new people. And by meet them, it could be email, it could be text, it could be a phone call. But you should take it as a personal challenge to use your existing network, ask them for referrals, ask them to meet more people. Um, I did that for roughly three years of trying to meet five new people a week, and it's just exploded my network. I know more people know of me than I know of. So uh, it's a great thing. So I would tell people, um, especially if they're in a market that in my case is, you know, two and a half hours away, or if you have to get on an airplane for meet more people, right? Take it as a personal challenge. Um, you know, if five is, is enough, go for it. But I'd love to hear you say 10 or 15, because you can meet a lot of people in email and texting and, you know, maybe a phone call here or there. So meet more people would be my advice.
3: Awesome. Thank you. All right. You ready to get into our final four questions? Sure. Of course.
1: All right, Michael, let's do it. So what is the one tool that you use in real estate investing that you could not do without?
2: Oh, uh, without question. It's my cell phone. I believe real estate investing is the people business. Uh, again, I choose to invest in a market that I can't drive too easily, right? I had to wake mm-hmm. up at 4 a.m. today to go do four meetings and come back to do this. That's, that's you know, while I get up early, I don't usually get up at four. Um, so the cell phones is extremely valuable. Now with FaceTime, I, I've, you know, I used to go see all of my properties. I know how, how crazy that is. Now I have people I trust. They can go with FaceTime and turn the mm-hmm. darn phone around and I can, you know, I can see most of what I want to see. So without question, the power that the phone gives you today, I can literally do deals on a Caribbean island and have done deals on a Caribbean island because of the, the cell phone. Um, even, even more than the computer, the, the cell phone has, uh, you took that away from me, boy, we, we'd, have, we'd have a battle. <laughs>
1: Awesome. Uh, can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing so far? And what is the main takeaway for our listeners?
2: Um, you know, so there's, you know, you've been in this game a long time. Mistakes happen all over. So uh, there was a time on an apartment building. Uh, I call it the hammer story. Uh, so, um, you know, it goes along, you're, you're collecting rents. This happens to be a 13 unit building. Uh, we, we get rent from, a new, from somebody we don't recognize, right? They actually paid the rent on the first. We're like, we don't recognize this person. Cause they're not in the, the rental system, right? They're not on the, they're not the signed lease. They're not the person, but the rents collect. So we cast the check. The month you know, we, we don't think anything of it. Cause I have a lot of units and it slips through the cracks. It goes by the next day, or the next month, same thing. And we're like, okay, let's go, let's go figure out who this person is. So we go knock on the door and by we, it's not me, right? I'm two and a half hours away. This is my team. They knock on the door and realize that the property has been sublet. That's a problem, right? No lease. But oh, by the way, we've also acknowledged them now because we've cashed the check. So now they have rights. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a problem. Um, so we, you know, we try to be very cordial and we say, well, you know, hey, all, you, know, you paid rent, you paid rent again. Thank you very much. We just want you to fill out an application and we'll approve you sight unseen. You've paid two months. So they fill out the application. All's good. Then lo and behold, we process it and he's given us a fake ID. Mm-hmm. It's not him, right? Picture's different. Oh, so we're like, oh, red flag. What's going on? So we go back and we go, hey, did, you, did your social numbers wrong? Because we're, we're trying to give him an out, right? Did you just mess up, right? What, what's going on? And at this point, it gets wonky. And he um, gets very dismissive and ultimately slams the door in their, their face. And now we know we have a problem, right? Now he's got rights. And I live in, I'm investing in California. That means at least 90 days for an eviction. So we go back. We start, start that process. Lo and behold, that evening, he throws what I now call the hammer party. So he invites all of his friends to this place (laughs) and hands hammers to each guest, blaring music. And they, they all start whacking the drywall in my place.
1: No way. Uh,
2: The police come two or three times. Oh yeah. It's, it's fun. Comes two or or three times to try to calm them down, never get inside, but they take the music down. They leave music goes back up. Now the whole apartment building is awake and furious. Uh, Ultimately the the cops come have everybody leave. Uh, The guy just takes off with everybody else. And my team goes in the next day. And I literally have about 10,000 hammer holes uh, in the drywall. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my hammer story. Uh, all from uh, being lazy and taking that first check. Um, yeah, that was silly.
1: Oh, my gosh. And the main takeaway for our listeners?
2: Is always run the right process. That We mm-hmm. should have not cashed that first check. We should have had the conversation early. It may have gone entirely different. Um, but since once we cashed it, they had they were, they had rights now. And um, I don't know if it goes the same way, but I know they had rights because we, we did not do the right process. And you know, we got, my team got lazy, Uh, but I always take the, I always take the bullet and say, I got lazy um, because I didn't hear about it until there was holes in my wall, but whatever.
1: Wow. Brutal. Uh, What is the, what is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level?
2: Oh, I, I have two goals in my life now that drive me every day. Uh, the first one is is I want to create content or material that outlives me by a hundred years, right? So think about that. I'm dead and buried for a hundred years and somebody's looking at my book or looking at a video I've done or something. So I'm trying to create content that is valuable and consistent in any market for anyone. So I'm trying to to do that. So that's a hundred years. So I think that's a pretty cool goal. The other one is I'm trying to find out a way to help a thousand people start by buying their first rental property. Lots of people are excited. They get really interested, but going from zero to one is hard. Mm
1: -hmm. So that's
2: what I'm focused on is helping a thousand people go from zero to one. And my ultimate goal I talk about in the book a lot is getting people to think about four. What I have found in my discussions is people hear financial independence and they like it, they get all excited and they go home and they go, that's too big, I can't get there, that's too scary. So I now just talk about getting to four. If you can just get to four, your life is different right? Your financial future is different. You pay off the mortgages. You can sell them. You can refine them. You can do cash outs, whatever you want. If you can get to four, life is good. So my other goal is a thousand people to start. Um, So those are the only two things that drive me every day. It's a hundred years and a thousand people.
1: Fantastic. And lastly, Michael, where can people find out more about you?
2: Uh, I spend a a great deal of time creating original content for my YouTube channel. It's called, surprise or not, one rental at a time. Uh, we just passed the 1,500 subscriber mark today, which I'm really happy about.
1: Wow, congratulations.
2: Uh, thank you. I I actually have, for over 100 days now, put out an, at least one video a day, so I'm going to keep doing that as long as I can. Uh, and then the other thing is, you, if you really want to hear about this 15-year journey through the ups and downs of the market, go to Amazon, buy the book, one rental at a time. It's available in paperback for $14.99. It tells our entire 15-year journey. It tells you 21 things you got to get right tells you what we've been doing the year since being retired. And again, it's it's just meant to create belief. I created that book as a way to create belief that everybody can do this. And believe me, if, if, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Uh, so those are the two ways, right? Go to my YouTube channel and subscribe. And please buy the book. Leave a five-star review. It means something on Amazon. I mean, you got, we got to get this self-published guys ratings up a little bit. So go <laughs> go make some five-star reviews, please.
1: All right. Amazing stuff. Thank you for sharing your story and the steps that you took to get to financial freedom through real estate investing. So with that being said, thank you everyone for spending some time with us. And Michael, we really appreciate your time.
3: Thanks, Michael. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Passive Income through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless.com dash estates.com if you enjoyed this show please subscribe to the podcast thanks again for joining us be sure to tune in again next week for another episode